Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Saltivation Podcast. Today, we are lucky to have Helen Hecht with us. Helen is Uniformity Counsel at the Multi-State Tax Commission, and will be able to give us some insight as to how the MTC works towards its mission, which is to achieve fairness by promoting compliance and consistent tax policy and practice, and to preserve the sovereignty of state and local governments over their tax systems. Helen, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. And of course, Saltivation's boss, Lady Judy Vorndren. Hi, Judy. Hello. <laughs> so, Helen, we love to know from all of our guests the path that brought them to their current position. So, can you please share with us the progression of your career and how you ended up at the MTC? Well, um, so I started out 100 years ago uh, in this field. Actually. You look great. <laughs> You're probably a like vampire. It. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it. So I was a accounting student at uh, New Mexico University. I was in my junior year and the New Mexico tax department had a great paid internship program. So six month internships paid at a decent rate of salary. And I was working in the office that handled these programs. And I thought, well, that's great. I want to do that. So I wasn't sure I wanted to be an accountant, actually. So uh, I thought this will this will help me figure that out. So I did this uh, first six-month internship, and then I liked it so much that I went back and did a second one. So it took me a year longer to graduate uh, as a result. But it really confirmed, one, that accounting was probably the right major for me. And when I got when I graduated, finally, I went to work at the tax department. They were, not only did they have this really progressive internship program, but they had a program back then that would pay you to get your degree. So I wanted to get my master's degree in, in accounting. And so they would pay your salary and benefits while you went to school and finished your degree. And then you had to work a certain amount of time after that for the tax department. You had to sign an agreement that you would do that. So I actually got my master's degree that way. And they had at that time also a really good program that they were trying to professionalize their audit staff. This was something that they had been working on for a number of years. And so another cool thing that I got to do was I wanted to get my CPA license and to have that, to get that in New Mexico, I needed a year's worth of experience. And it had to be actually working in the audit practice of a, of a firm that did financial audits. So I couldn't get it while working at the tax department. So they let me have a year off essentially to go get my um, my CPA certification uh, requirements met. And, and I brought all that experience back, uh, worked within the tax department with a number of other people to try and professionalize uh, the audit function within the, it was the New Mexico Taxation Remedy Department at that time. So this was the 1980s. I really, really, I could not have gotten that experience, I think, anyplace else. I, I tell people today that there's a downside working for government because it doesn't pay as much, but there's a huge upside in that you get to do all kinds of things that you wouldn't get to do typically, especially at that stage of your career. Mm -hmm. um, I left eventually to go to back into private practice at KPMG. So I went back to the firm that I had worked for to get my experience and then worked there for a while and decided I wanted to go to law school. So I was not a traditional law student. I was what they call a non-traditional law student, meaning that I didn't go right after um, me too I, I worked a couple of years as did well did you really yeah did I did really? I was like okay is this it I'm gonna go to law school yeah, yeah. it was I just yes. needed to pivot and yeah so I was an older student which is kind of challenging if you know what I'm saying yes I was no I know exactly what you're saying at, well I went to see you Boulder and it was too old too poor for the walnut brewery and too old for the walrus <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just in this tweener space of like, I'm just not that 22 year old, you know, going to law school. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No. And in some ways I'm glad that I waited. Me personally, I'm glad I waited because I got a lot more out of it than I think I would have gotten yeah. at the age of 22. Yes. Um, plus I knew what I wanted to do with it. I knew I, yeah. you know, being in the tax field, I said, I really have to, I really want this experience, this, you know, expertise that I don't have as an accountant. So I decided that that was a real 
add-on to what I was already doing. It wasn't sort of like a, okay, I'm going to change everything I'm doing. Um, so I really enjoyed it because I could I could sort of take away from the classes that I think other students were struggling to go, why is this relevant? I could sort of take away a little bit better from the classes what was going to be relevant to me. Except you're studying criminal law and constitutional law, which is relevant, and then property law and, you know, yeah. a lot of things that are not I'm tax related. to this day. I am shocked to this day how much that has helped me, though. But yeah. the one thing they don't teach at law school, I think, very well, at least the one I went to and from what I can tell, this is why we have LLM programs, in, I think, in the tax field is because they don't teach statutory law very well. Mm -hmm. And of course, all tax law is statutory law. Yeah, <laughs> and so That's a good point. It's like, you know, you're 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 learning about the 19th or the 18th century, and you're learning about the Constitution, but you're not learning about how, you know, legislatures and Congress make tax law and yep. how to interpret it and apply it. You don't really um, learn how to be an actual lawyer. You learn how to think. That's right. Three years. No, that's right. That's what they tell you. That. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. Yeah. But anyway, so then after law school, I got a job here at a local firm this here in Albuquerque and went to continue to practice in the state and local tax field, but also got some experience practicing in court. And I decided I liked that a little bit, but wasn't exactly I missed tax administration. So after about <clears throat> five years of doing that, a man I know, Jim Eads, who had been the executive director of the New Mexico Tax Research Institute here in New Mexico, which is a great organization. I highly recommend it. He was then the executive director of the Federation of Tax Administrators, and that's a sister organization to the MTC. Mm -hmm. The FTA is a membership organization for all the states, and every state is a member, and it's not a policy organization. It's not really... Uh, an organization that does the kind of work that we do or that Streamline does, but they bring states together to sort of share information and to work together. So that organization is based in D.C., and I started to work there remotely. That was my first experience ever working remotely. Didn't when know technology much, was awesome. Right. <laughs> didn't know how much uh, that would come in handy eventually. But uh, So I did that for about five years. And then the general counsel job at the MTC came open. And that's how I got to the MTC. Shirley Sicilian, my predecessor, had left to go to KPMG. Yes, I um, remember when she that did time, that. Yeah, at that time, the MTC was facing some challenges, mainly lawsuits challenging whether or not they should continue to exist in the form that they exist. It was putting a lot of pressure on states um, to decide whether they were going to stick with us. And we were having to def defend the organization against these lawsuits. And so I thought, what better time to go to the general <laughs> counsel of an organization when it's facing this potentially existential crisis. So, but I could not respect the pe people at the MTC more. Some of them I've known for a long time. And so I thought this will be great. It'll be fun. And it really was. It was a it was a great experience. I got to file briefs in the U.S. Supreme Court. I got to work on uniformity projects. We got to do training on these uh, sort of cutting edge issues. So it was again, you know, if I if I could say one thing to people starting out in this field, don't discount working in government because some of the work can be the most fun you'll ever do. About a year ago, I decided I really wanted to focus on uniformity. We didn't have a position within the MTC that did that. I mean, we just, everybody sort of worked on it, but nobody really focused on directing that work. And we decided that, yeah, that was a pretty good idea. And if I wanted to do that, my boss said, fine. And so we created this position called the Uniformity Council, and that's what I do now. And so, and my new boss is Nancy Prosser, who was the general counsel in Texas. So she joined the organization a year ago and that's been a great addition so it was a win-win-win for everybody so. and that's it you know it's an important point for you to say the whole thing about government because with a you know our our side is representing business and that's great but you have lots of businesses and so a government can like look at all the pie and go this 
this, you know, as opposed to everybody's like, I don't like the way it happens to me and change it. But it's like, well, the government's kind of trying to do a broad swath and they don't really just care about software and this or that or the other, right? And it has- All gotta fit together, right? Yeah, right. yeah. And, right. And, and my husband used to work for the state of Colorado. He was at the attorney general's office and it's the biggest law firm here in Colorado. And, you know, the sure. representing the state interests and it was a very rewarding job for him, I think. He did it seven yes. years great coworkers, great relationship with his peers, and then the opportunity and the autonomy to pursue initiatives without having to work about the billable hour per se, where it's right. like, I'm providing value, you know, am right. I paid? Am I making money? No, you are doing an alter, you know, altruistic kind of best practices, do things right for the citizenry of the state. And you have that right. situation for this, you know, your members. Interesting. Yes. No, I think that's, it's, it's very valuable in a whole lot of ways. Not the least of which is, and I, the one thing I miss about private practice is billable hours. And everybody always laughs when I say that, but government has so much to do yeah. that prioritizing is hard, you know, right. built-in priority when you're in private practice, which you don't have in government. Uh, and it's hard sometimes to... And you don't go to fruition. Focus. A client makes you come... Yes. To, yeah. They make you have a beginning and ending because they don't want to keep paying you forever and ever just to have some fun, right? And so right. what is the answer <laughs> to this problem? So we have to learn to be very, very efficient and strategic. But even with you, yes. it's like, okay, I'm being strategic, but somebody needs to make a decision. And right. how do I make right. sure... Is this worth it? Made. Yes. But, you know, it's yeah. interesting, this uniformity thing. And I feel, even with myself and my career, we have finally got the set system in place in Colorado for sales tax. And I've been on this commission with our governor for the last six years, I think, and I just got reappointed mm -hmm. for the next tranche, which is now an indefinite commission. But that we could get our home rural cities to come on board and potentially right. one point of registration and filing, what a blessing that is. And people said it could never be done. And so what I'm thinking you're trying to do is say, we can do this. There is more information. There is technology. We could create more parity amongst the states. And if we could do that, how much better that would that be for taxpayers? Like maybe right. the cusp of this, given technology, given data, given information that we can do more. Now, maybe build out to fire more places, but it will be easier, right? right. If no, technology is a clarity. huge tool for everybody. Yeah, I, we would not be where we are today if it, right? if it weren't for the advances in technology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. We're, we're talking and we're going to push our convert. We're going to record our conversation and we're going to put it out into the ether, like into the ethos and like, Hopefully, more oh, but I find it in oh, yeah. England. Who knows? Oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I just got a call actually to connect with somebody from an international organization in France. You know, right. so a meeting. It was right. hilarious. I'm looking at his calendar this morning. I'm like, 1 a.m. Because <laughs> it like translates to my time zone. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to do this call at 1 a.m. Yeah. Good luck. I know. Um, right. But, you know, because, you know, we're dealing with people internationally and nationally because the world is opener. Um, yes. Yes. So, and of course, people want to sell Americans because we like to buy stuff. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, we do. Then, Helen, can you just give us a high-level overview of like what the MTC is and kind of like what its purpose is? So, I mentioned the Federation of Tax Administrators where I worked mm -hmm. previously. So, the Federation of Tax Administrators was around back in the 1920s. It started really when states began to tax fuel. So fuel was the first big excise tax. And of course, fuel gets used in multi-state uses. Right. It's used in vehicles and things that are moving around. So that was the first time that the state said, we've got, we're going to have to cooperate to make this work because now we're all taxing the same thing uh, and there's going to be overlap. So that was an organization that as state taxation developed and you had the uh, sales and use taxes coming online, and then you had income taxes coming online. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. So then we had this organization that was just sort of again sharing information, letting states, you know, talk about the problems that they were seeing or the or the things that they needed to do, but not setting out any kind of uniform or common practice for the states. And then uh, we had this case in 1959 called the Northwestern States Portland Cement Case which is a mouthful. And that case was sort of a watershed moment for the U.S. Supreme Court. So sometimes things happen at the U.S. Supreme Court that the rest of us don't realize are happening. But what happened in that case was it was clear, and anybody who was following this issue knew it was clear, that 
the factions had been fighting, the two factions on the court had been fighting about to what extent should states be able to tax what was called interstate commerce back then, which just meant Mm -hmm. people coming into the state to sell things. And prior to that, the old school said shouldn't be able to tax it at all. And there was a new school developing on the court that said, yes, we're going to let states tax it. So this was a case in which that second faction won out and they were and they ruled that the state should be able to tax this situation, which we wouldn't think is unusual today. It involved a company that all its production was out of state, but it had a sales office and a lot of customers in the state. So when that case came down, that spurred a whole lot of activity. First of all, Congress passed this law that we now call PL 86272 which this is still affecting everybody's lives to this day. But in response to the state's opposition to that federal law, um, Congress said, okay, we're going to study this issue. We're going to study what states are doing in terms of taxing multi-state income, and we're going to decide maybe we'll do more. Maybe we'll impose a uniform Fed approach to this. So quit letting the states do whatever they want. It was far less uniform back then, if you can believe it. It was far less uniform back then. <laughs> really? Not every state, I know, not every state used um, the federal base as its base, starting base. Not every state used formulary apportionment. A lot of states did what's called separate accounting, oh, uh, which is kind of the international approach. So geographic accounting for your income. And clearly these approaches were not working. Anyway, so they... So the federal government put together something called the Willis Committee, named after its chairman, and they started studying this. So over the first four years of the 1960s, the federal government and the states were kind of working on this project. And again, this is before the internet, this is before fax machines, this is before conference calls or Zoom or any of this stuff. So they didn't even have things like Bloomberg or RAA. They couldn't even figure out what the states are doing without sending out surveys to the states and say, tell, tell us what your rule is on this. So they sent out a bunch of surveys to the states saying, do you tax this? How do you tax it? Would you impose the tax here? And they sent out a bunch of surveys to taxpayers saying, tell us what you do in all these states and whether or not you're paying tax. And then they got all that information together. We actually have a picture of this big room of people tabulating all this stuff by hand. And then after four years, uh, Chairman Willis came to the National Association of Tax Administrators, which is the prior name to the FTA, and presented the re- results of that study to the states, to the state tax administrators. And you would have thought that he would just say, you guys are crazy, right? You guys have every other kind of way of taxing income that's out there, and you guys need to get your act together, and this has to stop. But he didn't. Um his number one finding from the study was taxpayers are not complying. Well, they're not complying because it's too complicated. They're not complying because they can't. I mean, again, this is before all the technology that has made our lives so much simpler, but also the complexity and the lack of uniformity. And I think the state tax administrators generally went away from that meeting saying, yeah, we get it. We get it. This is not working. Um, so then what do you do? Well, the Willis Committee said, let's have a uniform federal law and let's just have a uniform federal apportionment law that will work for everybody and we'll make all the rules. But you can't do that without an administrative agency at the federal level. So who are we going to give that authority to? They said, well, let's give it to the IRS. And business community, which had been sort of, yes, let's do this, went wait a second, now you're going to have this giant federal agency that is probably going to be more responsive to the states when everything is said and done. And they're going to be controlling all of the apportionment, the income tax reporting for the states. Maybe we don't want that. Maybe we kind of like the fact that we can go to the state that we're in and say, change this rule for us, even though it's not uniform, make this make this change for us. So now there's no more cohesive support for this. So the second idea was, let's let the states band together themselves and see what they can do in terms of creating more uniformity. So not have the federal government 
do anything uh, or take on this whole area. But let's let the states see if they can voluntarily cooperate uh, to create a better system. So enter the multi-state tax commission. And that was an idea that had been floating around for a while, but how do you do it? And the, uh, the states ended up agreeing that the best way to do this is through an agreement that says, we're gonna fund this organization, we're gonna support it, we're gonna provide resources to it, but it's not gonna have any ultimate authority. So that was sort of the compromise that they agreed to back in the day. So 1967 got enough compact members to kick off the organization and it, it grew over time and some members came in and some members left, but it's been a functioning organization since 1967. So. It's interesting though, because you're organizing, you have ideas, but you have no teeth, right? Yes. There's yes. no right to your will to make people agree Right. Huh. Very interesting. Right. Now, now, and and we had really good success early on with both the adoption, state's adoption of the Uniform Division of Income for Tax Purposes Act, or what we call UDIPA, mm-hmm. yep. which was not something that the MTC did. This was a Uniform Law Commission model law. Uh, but states widely adopted that. So mm-hmm. you saw states moving from this separate accounting method of taxing multi-state income to apportionment and then adopting UDIP. And so we had a built-in thing to work on at that point, which is the regulations, the general allocation and apportionment regulations for this statute. Because it's not, you know, the statute's great, but it's like, you know, two pages and you need about 100 pages of regs to make that work. So there was a lot, lot to do at that point. And we had good success early on in bringing the states together and saying, let's you know, capitalize on this momentum and work on the things that we all know we're going to need. So that, that was the early part of the of the work of the the uniformity work of the MTC. And then over the years, we've changed our focus as the years have gone by. So wow, yeah, all I can think of is just like the like the cost performance model statute. That's mm-hmm. almost like there's like four states now that are what like a greater cost performance. But it's just like, oh yeah, you still have a lot of the old like the old language that probably got adopted right when right you in know, the 1970s. The, right, the kind of statute was coming out of like, hey, you don't know what to do. Here's what you should do, and it's still there. Yeah, and yes, that's obviously fewer and far between. But now I just I just like stuck on. It. I can even like see what it looks like because it's even. <laughs> Even in like the Virginia like yes. statute, like the formatting is exactly the same between all of those. And so like, yes. like yeah. my brain is just stuck on this picture of like that one particular <laughs> thing. And now I know the right. backstory. Yeah, right. And we have big binders in our, so we have a little library slash conference room at our offices in DC. And we have big binders of official documents and, you know, again, this was the 1970s, so they would put out this very complicated set of regulations, 50 pages of regulations. By paper, they would mail them to people, and it would come into the office, and they'd make copies of it and distribute it out. And then they would get letters back as as a response to, you know, and someone would have to go through all of this information and try and figure out what to do with it. So, you know, it's a very different world. Uh, under which they operated. And considering all of that, uh, you know, it's kind of amazing what they accomplished. And especially so, you know, kind of the foundation of this is to create uniformity, right? Mm -hmm. Things change. And then now here you are, fast forward 65 years later, such that, or not that my math is off, but anyway, you know, (laughs) fast forward to two years ago, you know, that now you are titled Uniformity Council. So then what are you doing now as like Uniformity Council? To- and why isn't it uniform? Why do you have any, why do you have something to do? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, lawmakers uh, in short. Right, and lobbyists. Yes, and lobbyists, <laughs> yes, right. I, the tax administrators are going, just please make it doable. Could we have a workable system maybe? Because... Yep. That's really all we care about. So, yeah, so why why Uniformity Council? So we've gone through these phases. We went through a phase where we were focused on combined filing and making sure that states understood how to do combined filing because it's not as easy as it looks. And no, it's awful. Yeah, so I mean, you know. 
from like putting having to like put pen to wells. Well, and like putting actual pen to paper and even just like making it happen outside of the rules is complicated. And then you have to layer in the rules. It's like, yeah, it's it's not easy. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, that's why you have at the federal level all these consolidated uh, filing regulations. Well, yeah, the 1502 regs that are like this. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) Listeners, I'm not in screen. But yeah, <laughs> right. No, you're doing this, and I, I agree with it. <laughs> so we, so that was, you know, very similar. We spent a lot of time on that, and of course, this was the time when people were arguing about worldwide combined filing and California's approach to worldwide combined filing, and there was a backlash against that. So we spent a lot of time on that during the 1980s. Then during the 1990s, we kind of branched out. This was all before my time, but kind of the MTC kind of branched out into other things. And then we had the Quill case. And before Quill, I think states were anticipating that there was going to have to be some change in how the sales tax system worked. There's more and more interstate commerce. There's more and more remote sellers without physical presence. What are we going to do about that? 1992 came around, and the Supreme Court upheld North, uh, not Northwest, but uh, National Bellis House upheld National Bellis House, and in Quill, and then the state said, okay, if we want to be relieved of this limitation on our ability to collect the tax, and that's the only thing that works in the sales tax area is to get the seller to collect the tax. If we want to be able to do that with these remote sales. We're going to have to simplify. And so that's the point at which FTA and the MTC and the states together said, we've got to have a new organization, which is where Streamline Sales Tax Group comes from. I remember thinking I wasn't going to have a job when they came around. I'm like, oh, it's going to be all the same. Well, here we are, however many years later, (laughs) they'll have a job because it's all the same. (laughs) I I don't think that's a fear, really. But, But so we stopped working on sales tax stuff as much back then. We've had a couple of projects since then, mostly having to do with, we had a project that followed on New York's law, the Amazon law, which would, would which would say, if you've got a website and you've got affiliates in the state supporting that website, sending people to that website, that's enough of a presence here. We worked on a model for that we also so that's a click-through nexus and the commission. Exactly, takes- click-through nexus, affiliate yeah. nexus. And then there was an idea proposed by Colorado. What, notice uh, and instead reporting? Of to, yeah, instead of having to collect the tax, why don't you just tell us all the sales you made to the state? Thank you, Phil customers. Horowitz and Draconian. <laughs> I give him a lot of grief. Wow, He's Phil a, Horowitz. Yeah, right he on. and I worked yeah. together. He just yeah. spoke yesterday at one of our salt breakfasts. Oh, so. good. He's yeah. great. Phil. <laughs> my favorite people. Yes. So this was his idea, and, and it led indirectly, <laughs> of course, to the Wayfair case. Yeah. Um, and so we got involved in those issues. But there was a period of time when I think we felt like at the MTC, we're just sort of not knowing what we're doing. And uh, whether that's true or not, the Uniformity Committee and the Strategic Planning Committee at the MTC decided to work together just to see, are we being effective? Uh, so what projects have we worked on in the last, you know, few years and how many states have adopted what came out of those projects? So this was, we undertook this back in the, about 10 years ago, we started this. So we're looking back now to a period of time that's 15, 20 years ago. And what they found was we probably need to do a better job at selecting these projects to begin with. They're time intensive. They take a lot of time and attention. Maybe states are not really ready to do anything or to change. And we need to be more careful what projects uh, we pick. Now, by the time we came up with that result from that analysis, we were already doing that to some extent. So we had already sort of processed some of this and we're saying to ourselves, Let's make sure we work on the most important things where states are really ready to do something. And at that time, we were working on the market sourcing for sales factor apportionment. We were a little behind by the time we got started on that uh, for various reasons. But that project showed 
that we could take on a really, really complicated issue, one where states were kind of disagreeing, but moving in a similar direction, and get them to at least agree on some of the details. You might take a slightly different theoretical approach, but let's all agree that if it's this kind of service, it gets sourced based on these on this information. I think one of the key things that came out of that project was the creativity of it, really, the problem solving, that we were in a new sort of unexplored territory with a lot of these detailed rules, and we spent a lot of time talking about, oh my gosh, how are we going to deal with this or that or whatever. Like Sirius and XM Radio, things. how do you source that sale? Yeah, yeah. Based on user, based yes. on the tower, based on what? I mean, a satellite that's nowhere. Where is it? My home. I'm driving around right. to that service. I'm not. I might not even be in Texas where I live. I might just be in. Right. I might be in Yellowstone. Of course, it doesn't work very well there. They don't have great internet. It's <laughs> all service there. But regardless, I mean, that is such a crazy thing yes. because technology is interspersed and sourced, and the Goldberg versus Sweet cases and all that for telecommunications. I yes. mean, it could be anywhere because yes. it's mobile. Right. So when you say project, are you saying, Helen, that you guys kind of assimilate all the laws and then go, this is how one state's doing it versus this is how another state's doing it. And they're how are they interpreting this exact same fact? This is some disparity here because they're not interpreting this exact same language the same mm. way. And it's creating an even result to taxpayers. Well, so every project is a little different. The and what this what this strategic planning study showed us is. If, if what you're describing, the situation you're describing, is typically the situation in which we may be the, le the least effective at uniformity. So let's say we've got a problem. Every state faces that problem, and every state has already come up with their own solution to it. Right. And it works for them, and they've just, you know, it's in the forms, and it's in the instructions, and it's in the technology, it's in the system. Uh, and to undo all that and adopt a different approach just to make it more uniform, it's not going to happen. But if we can say, but but it is that kind of problem, by the way, is something that technology is often useful for. Because if you've already got a definitive, clear approach to it, even if 50 states differ, maybe that's a solution. Or maybe that's a problem looking for a technology solution rather than uniformity. All we know is it's just harder sometimes to get states to change that because what will move them in that direction is if the technology works better if you do it this way versus that way. So what we've seen is for some things, states will say, oh, well, if it costs us less to implement this technology and do it this way, then we'll change our approach because it's worth doing. But if we're just trying to say, well, we're going to pick a uniform approach and 30 of us are going to have to change the approach we're using. That's a lot to ask. So technology is probably the first the first tool that states will reach for in that situation. So is that like working in lockstep with the, with the software programs that do tax returns, like the ghost? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yes. So they're collectively yes. working together to say, how can you modify the inputs to this to get the right result in my state? Yes, I think more and more we're versus seeing Finnegan that. and all that. So they're really hoping the technology. Yeah, more and more we're seeing to bend our rules. You know, this this approach takes this data set and it very complicated and subject to all kinds of problems. Whereas this approach takes this data set and only two steps, and it's much easier to do. States will say, "Okay, now you've convinced us it's worth moving to this to this more uniform approach." I would just like to know how the states are going to administer like a digital tax on advertising when that's, you know, <laughs> but I'm like, come on. I mean, advertising's everywhere. It's just citizen-based. I mean, oh, I, I looked at that ad. I mean, how the heck are you going to tax that? I So that should be an interesting pivot because what I find with the, you know, everybody knows where the money's coming from, but they don't know how it's mm -hmm. coming exactly through their invoicing process, if that makes sense. So like you looked interactive with my ad, you clicked on it and booked a room. I get paid on the come for that room, right? And that comes back to me. Mm -hmm. But that room was used in Texas. You looked at it, well, you're in, in New Mexico. So, okay, right. where do you source that sale? So, um, right. yeah, I think- That's yeah. a great example. <laughs> yeah. No, that's no, that's a great example because sometimes it's, 
sometimes it's a choice between two states and sometimes it's a choice between three or four states in terms of sourcing, which makes it really complicated. And it's funny kind of with like, you know, the market sourcing stuff is there's a simple concept of benefit, right? But then, yeah, where is it and who actually is the ultimate benefit, you know, benefactor of a coupon, right? Like a digital right. coupon. Right. Is it someone selling cereal? Is it the consumer who gets the dollar off that cereal, you know, or is it the company who's helping connect the consumer with the cereal brand? So right. who's the ultimate, who, right. who gets, who's... And then the cereal gets bought at a grocery store or whatever. That's true. So that's not even any, they're not, no one is the buyer, the seller of that. That's not the manufacturer. That's not the buyer. That's a grocery store. So how many times are we going to count the same receipt? That's another thing that I think is kind of an interesting issue. Yeah. Now I, I think, you know, digital advertising, one of the things that's true about it is that it's a B2B sale. I will say this. Sometimes these problems are, if you go into the details, you lose the forest for the trees kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. So you're always trying to fit this slightly squarish peg into a round hole and maybe it almost fits and you keep trying to do that versus backing up and saying, okay, what's the whole point of this tax? Why do we do it this way? You know, one of the things, for example, that you find in the sales tax area, one of the difficulties is sellers having to charge the tax on each transaction, right? So this is something that was brought home to me when we did the work on the sales factor, market sourcing on sales factor. You can say something to, in a situation where it's just too complicated to do exact sourcing. When it comes to the sales factor, you can say, get close, you know, use a reasonable estimate. It doesn't matter that it's exactly right. What's important is that it's consistent and that it's mostly right. And if you have to use population even, use population. Mm -hmm. If you're doing this everywhere, then that's probably close enough. Right. Whereas that's really hard to implement in the sales tax area because we've right. got this traditional view that it's got to be charged transaction by transaction. So sometimes you just have to stop and say, quit trying to fit the square peg into the round hole and let's figure out, is there a different way to do this? And why are we trying to do it? And for that, sometimes, I know this is counterintuitive, but for that, sometimes you have to slow everything down, right? So states are saying, hey, let's do this digital ad tax. Wait a second. Why, why are you doing that? And what is that? Maybe that is the right approach. Maybe when you think about everything, that's the right approach. But oftentimes, it's not very deliberate. It's just sort of a reaction. I feel like it's political. Like we want to go after Google and Facebook. They're making a ton of money on ads and we want a piece of it. And it's sort of like oil and gas, the severance taxes. Like we pivoted to those because they were making a lot of money on oil and gas. And now we want a little piece of it. And, and income taxes are hard to raise, right? So we can't raise the rates on income taxes. And so anyway, I just think it's like, let's just add another tax to go after these particular businesses that are making piles of money on all the digitization they have of the human. I don't know. Right. I think it's a really interesting layering in our in our world as technology has shifted the way we deploy. And, you know, we were a goods organized, you know, manufactured, we made things, and then they got deployed, you know, and that's not the economy we have anymore. So we still make things. No, that's right. I mean, that's, that's, and our system doesn't fit that. Yes, no. our system doesn't fit that. So, so this is the, if you recognize the problem, the nature of the problem, sometimes you can, you can fix it. I mean, we've, We've had situations where we've said, you know what, if you just move this, you know, or change our view of that, then this continues to work just fine. Maybe you do need a whole new tax. Uh, maybe it's the nature of, uh, I've seen lots more creative writing in recent months on some of these old problems, you know, intangibles. How do you value them? How do you source them? Why is it that, you know, our expenses for intangibles are expensed for tax purposes rather than capitalized? How is it that you could create an asset that would be comparable to a plant or machinery, the kinds of things that we're used to? Can we still fit these things into that same box or 
do we have to create a whole new system? I've seen a lot more create uh, creativity around that in recent years. And I think to some extent, people are recognizing we just can't continue to tax uh, you know things like it's the 19th century. We're just we've, we're going to have to evolve, and our systems are going to have to evolve. Right. Well, I think that's why the market sourcing makes more sense because there, you know, you can't really penalize mm -hmm. a company for having heavy industrial operations. So they're heavily situs in a place. Right. Right. Move. Now we've learned people can pick up and move. Right. I mean, if you're in a technology space, you could be anywhere. I mean, you could have people in Israel doing coding for you in India, like Mexico. I mean, it really just doesn't all have to happen in America. So then you're like, well, then I sold. Some things like the as simple as the annual reporting system. You know, we lose we lose track of all this stuff. So how do you report taxes every year? That's how you report. Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe I spent, as my company spent, a lot of time and effort developing technology 10 years ago that we're just now bringing to market. It's just now creating income for us. Mm -hmm. Are we going to use what we were doing back then or are we going to use what we're doing today to source that income, right? So maybe those employees have moved and maybe I am now have a new headquarters someplace else. Some of this doesn't match up anymore, right? No. And yet, if you don't, if you're not careful in terms of trying to figure out what were our principles, what is this designed to do? Does it still do that? You don't identify the right problem. You know, that's what they always tell you when you're trying to solve a problem. The most important thing is to make sure you identify the actual problem. Okay, so maybe this idea of always looking to this year's property and payroll, maybe that's not the right answer. Maybe we should say, let's look over a longer period or or let's get rid of property and payroll entirely because it just doesn't match up. Right, which I feel like that's been the, that's been the transition we've been seeing more. The single sales factor, the double yes. sales factor, get rid of the property and the payroll, just done. We don't care about that anymore. You know? Yes. Well, right. I've never right. actually felt that Nexus created by a remote employee, one employee in a state is a fair measure of an income tax filing. I've just always found that to be quite troubling because mm. that's convenience. That has nothing mm -hmm. to market. Sure, you might sell there, fine, maybe mm -hmm. that, but to actually have a remote employee creating a nexus creating activity for a filing of a return, crazy, one human, mm -hmm. humans, just, that's not momentum. So there are some things that are just don't make sense. It's become a big issue. It, and well, now with COVID and the remote and people moving, and now you have nexus somewhere else that you never anticipated before because you couldn't bring them in the office, craziness. The New Hampshire, Mexico. Uh, yeah, that's been the biggest issue for the last year, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's been the, the one that everybody's focused on. Yep. Well, I feel like we should talk about PL 6272 in the chat boxes and that kind of thought about the new standard around, you know, with Wayfair, you're mm -hmm. going to see more sales tax licenses, which means more companies are going to be registering in states. And I feel the question's going to come, where's your income tax return? Where's everything else you should have, you know, been filing here? Uh, just because you wrote a sales tax license registration form and signed it. So what do you think about that? Like marrying that up? I think feel like that's going to be the, the, you're just going to file everywhere. It's just going to way it's go. So we've got to create more parity so that you can as a business or you're not going to do it. Yeah. So income tax has always been a big issue. We had clients when I was in practice that had to file, you know, had to file small little returns in a dozen different states and it was a pain in the butt for them. And, they hated to have to do it. Um, what you're describing, I think, is an even worse scenario, which is, okay, now I filed in the four states I really thought I needed to file in and apportioned all my income there and pay tax. And now you're telling me, oh, no, it should have been eight states, which would yep. have changed everything. And I would have, pay, I would have paid a different amount of tax. And we understand that. But let me just say, as a preface to all of this, we didn't do this states. It was not the state's idea to do PL 86-272 in terms of laws, not the greatest. Uh, it, and, and we always say, we always start these discussions by saying it was designed to be temporary, not because it still is. It's been with us for low these 65 years, but they didn't think that hard about it. If they had, I guarantee you, would it have been limited to tangible personal property? Probably not, but it is. Would it have drawn the lines where it drew them? Maybe not. But despite that, has Congress ever come back 
and done anything to that law? No. Nope. This is the problem with federal law often, uh, especially in these areas where they're not used to having to revisit. There's no infrastructure around this. They don't have, I mean, the Joint Committee on Taxation that's always studying federal taxes, they don't care about PL 86272. They don't care about issues like this. There's no administrative agency. You can't issue regs. There's nobody coming back to Congress. Even the states, right, are just going, I guess we have to live with this. They did it in 1959, and we're just stuck with it for the rest of eternity. So that's where we all are. We're sort of all in the same boat. And then the question is, should we, even though we can't issue binding regulations, should the states at least telegraph? Here's what our position is going to be. So you know the risks you're taking. You can calibrate those risks if you're a seller that may fall into this category Here's the position we're going to take. I don't see a real downside to that. I really don't, because it's still going to be up to the courts to decide. I mean, all of these issues are up to the courts to decide. Still going to be up to them to say, is this the right interpretation of that federal statute? But at least you know ahead of time. Now, saying that, I would also say from the state standpoint, they want to make sure, again, that it's administrable. If we draw the line in some weird area, nobody can tell when you've crossed that line. That's not going to work very well. So from our standpoint, it's just saying, should we draw the line here or here or here? And how is that going to affect everybody? Um, for every seller that says, look, I was protected by this law, or at least I thought I was, and now you're telling me I'm not and I don't like that. There are sellers who say, well, I was never protected by it. And I don't think it's fair necessarily that you were. So we have to balance all of those considerations. Um, but again, I think the number one most important thing is that if you draw the line, everybody agrees. We know where that line is. It's clear. And we can tell when somebody has stepped over. I can't tell you how many of my clients have said to me, the federal government needs to act. The federal government needs to act. And, you know, we went all, I mean, I remember tracking the history um, of the federal actions around the Wayfair issue, which of course went to the Supreme Court because I couldn't figure out what yeah. to do. Right. They just sat there and talked about it and said it's a problem and we need a small business exception. And they I'm took hearing. action for like 15, 20 years. You're like, the federal government's not going to act, okay? Get over it, taxpayers. Right. They're not going right. to over And then here's the Supreme Court making a decision. Done. Everything's so decided. Here's, a, here's, an, here's an unusual situation in which we have a solution. The MTC has a solution. Uh -huh. And states are starting to look at it. And that okay. is our factor presence nexus standard. Yes. So just kind of like South Dakota, who said to the court, it's not that we just want to tax everybody. We'll, we'll create a standard. It'll be a bright line standard. It'll just work better than physical presence. Um, we have a standard we think works a lot better than PL 86272. Uh -huh. And we've been promoting that as the MTC for over 20 years, this factor presence you know, half a million dollars of sales, $50,000 of property, $50,000 of payroll. Change the numbers if you want to change the numbers. Raise them, time to inflation. But that's a much better standard. One, because taxpayers are going to compute that information anyway. You know, right. They have that. They, they know I've got to figure out where my sales are. I've got to figure out where my property is. So they've got it. Two, if you don't have those things, you're not going to owe very much tax anyway. So right. why why try to tax people under those amounts? States don't want to do that. And three, it's just a much clearer, brighter line than PL 86272 has turned out right. to be in the context of this new digital economy, right? Yes. It worked great when everything was physical. Not so much anymore. Well, and it's also the so, creativity around sales. I mean, we have a client that does like they'll do in they'll do CPE kind of classes for their uh, for for free uh, yeah. about yes. their products, and they go after yeah. the community that would would sell them or buy them from them. You know, so that exceeds PL eighty six two seventy two. But it's really just a marketing yep. ploy to say, hey, we'll get you to come listen to a pitch about our products and how to use it. And we'll give you this little extra accreditation, whatever the word. Um, accreditation? So that, <laughs> accreditation, there's the word, that you will participate and you're incentivized to come yeah. because you get a double whammy. You've got to get that. And you want to learn about this product, yeah. have a nice lunch. Nope. 
PLA 6272 overridden. Or let's let Absolutely. this person come into the company and they're an R&D guy. And guess what? That's not a PLA 6272 approved. And now you have to file a tax return there. So I, I hear you there, although that would probably exceed 50,000 of payroll. So you'd have a duty anyway. But there there's some things where it'd be nice if we saw a little bit more standardization um, in, the, in the marriage of that. We do have clients, though, that are filing all these sales tax returns, and then they have to file like 50 cents a tax in a jurisdiction. And it costs them more money to create right. that tax return than it does to actually right. give the government the tax. I mean, because it's time and time intensive to create these tax returns across our nation. Oh, sure. Well, and that was, that it's was not like the there's a 1040EZ. <laughs> right. No, that was the whole intention of the of the factor present standard was to say, we know how this tax gets calculated. You can have a gajillion dollars of income, but if but if you've only got 0.01% of that income in a state, and then you multiply that times the tax rate, you're not going to owe very much. You right. know, even if you're making a gajillion dollars of, of, of income, your profit margin, whatever, all of those things go into the calculation of the tax. And we can set a standard that ensures that people are not going to get away with filing taxes uh, everywhere and um, reduce the uh, the cost of compliance that you're and then avoid about. the digital ad taxes and stop creating new taxes because you're actually getting all the right. taxes from everybody else. I kind of wonder though, you know, I've been reading different things that saying the state's coffers aren't as low as we thought, despite the but despite mm -hmm. COVID. And I wonder mm -hmm. if that's a fair. I don't. I wonder what it is that's creating this money. No, I, I think that's. I think. I think the timing could not have been better. The timing of Wayfair, given everything else, could not have been better. Those states, for the most part, with a few minor exceptions, that had already expanded their sales tax to include, especially the marketplace sales, yeah. saw huge, you know, that the revenue that came in from that offset one, the revenue that was not coming in from restaurants and some other businesses that suffered during the pandemic. But also, I think, the fact that that consumption continued to create income and jobs and other things during that period of time. So, I mean, the, I don't know that it would have turned out this way had it not been for the ability of both the market to respond, such as it did, and the tax system to respond uh, to it. Uh, what I was going to say about the factor presence nexus standard is we still very much support that. And, I think if effort was put into getting that enacted at the state level, uh, I think there'd be a lot of states that would be receptive to it. Maine just passed it. So why haven't we gotten there despite that? And now we're going off of these pivots to add digital taxes and like Nevada adding their commerce tax, which is now six years late. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, gross receipts taxes. What are we doing here? I mean, I realize they don't have an income tax. That's their issue there. They, you know, they don't want to create an income tax or so they create the commerce tax. But like, why can't we see that momentum? I mean, you guys have proposed this for years and we still aren't seeing yeah. enough momentum towards it. Well, that was interesting because um, Maryland doesn't have combined filing. And so, and even states that do adopt combined filing, if they don't do it the right way, are not going to see some of this income that is right now not being taxed, or at least they're not taxing it, um, are not going to see that income. So you have to do these things the right way. I don't know exactly why. I think sometimes it's a lack of information. I, I also think that for states that have tried income taxes and said it's just too complicated, grocery receipts tax is easier, I get that. I mean, I understand how Ohio could have said we tried the income tax, and it's just way too complicated. And to some extent, it's subject to federal changes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. One of the things that makes it complicated is the federal government drives some of its economic policy through the tax system. It's not dependable because your your baseline can change yeah. so much. So let's get rid of the income exactly. tax at the state level and go to a receipts tax everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's Dare I been, suggest. I don't or you think can do that's as Oregon controversial an idea. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Well, exactly. it just it's that's the thing that's muddling is the differences of taxes, you know. And I think a lot of taxpayers, I mean, even PL 6272, I can't after I left the big four and went to a regional forum, I can't tell you how many people thought PL 6272 applied 
to everything. They just didn't even get it. They yes, didn't get it. Right. Stuff. I know. They didn't get it for income tax. So there is a huge disconnect with practitioners between what duties apply um, to you as a business. They don't even understand it. They understand federal, you know, you're an S Corp, you're an LLC, you're this, you're that, but they don't understand states at all. And we have a real problem when we have 46,000 or some crazy amount of CPA firms in our nation where they don't understand the state and local tax consequences of our, of, of their businesses that they represent and they work on behalf of it's, it's a real problem. I mean, the Wayfair thing has been the best thing ever for state and local practitioners where it's been nationally a prominent news. I mean, when do you see the New York Times? Mm. Post, people know talking about i mean and right. are talking about wayfair who cares about taxes well guess what it's out there so that's been a fan, fascinating shift for all of us i think as practitioners to get legitimized like all the craziness we've been mm. dealing with years don't you think but now we need to take that next step from the income tax perspective i think and i assume mtc's trying to lead that charge but it's always just dependent on who adopts because you only have so much you don't have as much authority. You have influence, right? But the decision-making goes right. to the legislatures. Well, the decision-making also always goes different places. So even in Streamlined, you know, there are states that can pull out of Streamlined. There are states that can say they have influence within the process. And they also have yep. influence by saying, you know, if you do this, we're gone. So, I mean, that kind of political will is always ultimately the thing that decides everything. Yeah. But wide. But the big trend is probably in the sense that um, states are going to have to start collaborating more. I mean, that's just the that's just the bottom line. It's just not it's not going to work for them. We're kind of back to where we were, you know, when I described uh, the situation in the early 1960s, where Chairman Willis goes to the commissioners and says, "People are not complying. You're not getting the tax either because your system is outmoded." You know, today it's really that is the problem. The system is not is not designed to handle these kinds of things. So you can either continue to try and make this system fit a new, an entirely new situation, or you can cooperate together to say, all right, how do we do something new without adding complexity? You know, can we reduce complexity and do something new? Can we fix the problem and not everybody try various different solutions to it. Uh, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that experimentation is good. But obviously, in today's world, that comes with a huge price. So uh, I think the fact that states can, while the MTC can't tell them what to do, this is one place where they can cooperate and say, what if we did it this way? What if we did it this way? Here's what we're seeing. And here's, here's something you may not have thought about. Um, there's no place else really for them to do that kind of work. So, well, we've certainly seen uh, that it's possible to get change that you would never, in my entire career, I have never seen governments act as quickly as they have in enacting a marketplace and or <laughs> Yes. Two years, we're at yes. 100%. I mean, every state that has a sales has a Wayfair or a marketplace law. It Now, Missouri and Texas, or Texas, Florida, Missouri and Florida, you know, not 100% enforced yet, right? We're just on the cusp of that, but crazy. Like, after one after yeah. another, laws are getting enacted. So, clearly, this can happen. Momentum allows that. Here's an example of where the... the solution preceded the ability to implement the solution. So we knew what the solution was. Uh, even with respect to marketplaces, this was an idea that came out of New York. You know, Rob Plattner, who was with New York for many years, publishes this article like 10 years ago going, why don't we collect this tax from the marketplaces? And everybody freaks out. Well, but, you know, okay, the marketplace may not be the seller in the traditional sense, but mm -hmm. we only collect the tax from the seller because it makes sense. Just like right. we collect tax from employers on the employees' wages because it makes sense. So, all right, we're not doing it now, but that doesn't mean it's crazy. So we had kind of a set of solutions, you know, sales thresholds and marketplace collection and some other things. We were ready to go when Wayfair came down, which is not always the case, right? Sometimes... It's like the boiling frog, you know, the water keeps getting hotter and hotter. And eventually it's like, oh, crap, we have to do something about this um, this problem. And we don't have a solution. We haven't thought hard enough about it to come up with a solution, which is where we are most of the time, I think. 
Well, and I think, well, Frida, I think that's a really good place, you know, to stop because we've come full circle, right? Where we've, you know, mm -hmm. the the starting point for the MTC was just like, hey, there's all of these things happening. Let's all get on board. And again, that's where we are today, you know, over 50 years later. Mm -hmm. And so, Helen, this has, this has been incredibly insightful. So we really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for being here and, and sharing you know, everything you have with us. This has been the Saltivation Podcast. Until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.